are parties do not represent the economic interests of the bottom 50% of our population very well. They represent their cultural and social interests on the right. and the left, they represent a bit their economic interests in a welfare state sort of framework. But they don't really have anything that says, here you are, people without university degrees, you have a bright and blossoming, burgeoning future in our society and our economy as it's developing. Because the truth is, they don't. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. There has been strong reason to worry about democracy in India for a number of years now. The restrictions on free speech in the country kept getting stricter. Attacks on Muslim minorities became more violent. The concentration of power in the hands of Narendra Modi's government kept advancing at a fast pace. But the last few days have accelerated these developments significantly. Rahul Gandhi, the flawed and imperfect, sometimes uninspiring and uninspired leader of the main opposition party, Congress, has been convicted by a judge in Narendra Modi's state of Gujarat of defaming the prime minister. He has been given a two-year jail sentence, which he's not yet serving, and a supposedly neutral bureaucrat quickly moved to expel Gandhi from his seat in parliament. A ruling government jailing the main opposition leader, especially on as spurious a charge as libel is a classic tactic for consolidating power. And it is a very worrying sign of where India is headed. I have two additional observations about these developments in India. The first is that it reminds us of the dangers of restrictions on free speech that can be abused by authoritarian populists once they reach power. It is perfectly appropriate to have some form of libel law, but those have to be narrow with an obligation on the person suing to establish the recklessness of the person who made false claims about them. It certainly shouldn't be as loose as it is in India or in Germany, where things that are clearly a form of political speech, a form of fighting words within the realm of politics, can easily have uh, heavy financial penalties or even criminal consequences. That limits the realm of what people can say too much, And it gives authoritarian governments tools to persecute, not just prosecute, their opponents. The second thing that this reminds me of is the absolute necessity of being very careful in both formal and substantial terms when prosecuting politicians who lead significant political movements. My guest today is Martin Wolf. Martin is the chief economics commentator for the Financial Times, and he is the author of a very interesting new book called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. We talked today about why Martin believes that democracy and capitalism really do go together, really need each other to thrive in both directions. Why it is that we have ended up in a crisis of this political economic regime, what the stakes are when we lose it, and how it is that we might be able 
to overcome the crisis and sustain both our economic and our political institutions. Martin Wolf, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be with you. So you have a new book, and I think the most interesting thing about it is how you connect the political story to the economic story of the last decade. How should we think about integrating those two narratives, those two questions about how to understand the world at the moment? Well, it has to be remembered that I come, unlike most people who write about democracy and uh, the future of our politics, from an economics background, not from a politics background, either as a practitioner or as a student of politics. I did some political science and political history when I was at Oxford, but that's more than half a century ago. So it's a long time ago. And though, of course, as I've been going around the world in my various jobs when I was at the World Bank and subsequently working on trade, I was aware that politics was very central. I wasn't doing abstract economics. Nonetheless, economics was the core of what interested me. And I focused on that pretty well exclusively until about 20 years ago, and particularly 15 years ago when the financial crisis happened. Most of the time, like most economists, I was quite comfortable with compartmentalizing, thinking, you know, the political system does what it does. We've got a democratic backdrop here. It works more or less. And we can just discuss policy and how the economy unfolds. And then reality crashed into this neat compartmentalization. The immediate impact was to make it clear that if you can have a big financial crisis is a political event. It's not just an economic event. So the response to the crisis and the understanding of the crisis and the consequences of the crisis are all political events. So in that really fundamental sense, reality crashed through the walls that economists have built around what they look at. But then I realized something broader, which should have been obvious to me all my life, is that the way we compartmentalize our thinking about the economy and society more broadly is extremely peculiar. It's academically convenient because it's intellectually convenient, but it doesn't make any sense. So contrast what we do in the social sciences with what we do in the physical sciences or in the sciences broadly. Each of the major scientific specializations we have is, as it were, lays on top of the one below. So at the bottom, there's physics, which is the fundamental forces of the universe. Then you get to chemistry, which is more complicated relations governed by physics. Then we get to biology, biological relations, and then we start getting to the, actually the behavior of, at a very crude level of living things. But when we look at society, we don't lay them one on the other. They're all side by side. They all interact. So sociology, psychology, possibly psychology is the foundation science, but it's very difficult to do it for a huge masses of people, though there's some element. But sociology, politics, and economics all lie side by side, and they interact like mad. Basically, I saw that not only had the financial crisis meant that economics had crashed into politics, but the crash hadn't gone away, that it was pretty obvious that something had happened in recent years which undermined the confidence of a broad part of our population in the economic and political systems together and leading them to listen to voices which one, one I simply hadn't expected to be listened to, in, particularly in sophisticated, advanced democracies like the US and UK, and then started to analyse what had gone on, why they lost confidence. Plenty of people were pointing to cultural and social developments of the previous 40 years, but it seemed to me pretty obvious that that was very clearly insufficient and that what had been going on in the economy had created very profound changes in the social position, the economic position, obviously the cultural position of important groups in our society. These economic changes had actually generated a profound social and then political revolution. And one of the consequences was that the people who were not doing very well, had not been doing very well, started jumping out of the constraints of the standard political system 
and wanted something completely different from their political leaders. So help me think through this. So the title of the book is The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. The way you're talking about it, it, it mostly sounds for the crisis of capitalism is driving the crisis of democracy. So what is the crisis of capitalism at this point in history? And what is its connection with the crisis of democracy? Okay, so to answer this, I first had to decide what the relationship between these two things is. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, how are democracy and capitalism related? Why do they go together? Why the world's most advanced capitalist societies also democracies. Was this an accident? Because to understand the breakdown, I had to understand what had happened in the first place. And to summarize it very briefly, I learned from looking at the literature that essentially democracy in our sense was a child of capitalism, was a product of capitalist societies. It hadn't existed before then. I could, I think, trace reasons why there was this relationship, why capitalism created processes both directly and indirectly that led to the demand for democracy. I could see some accidents in that, but it seemed to me very fundamental. And in that they had values in common and interests in common. For listeners who may be sceptical about this point, perhaps you can spend a little more time trying to explain it. So why should we think that the relationship between capitalism and democracy, the connection between those two, is more than accidental? Why is it that you need capitalism in order to have democracy? Well, it would be a very strange accident if it were an accident. Prior to 1800, there were essentially no democracies anywhere. And the dominant way we structured societies in all the more advanced ones is a small number of people owned all the resources and they controlled all the politics. So wealth and power were essentially the same thing. And, and that was the normal way we ran societies. Now, why would capitalism have created something different? Because it clearly did create enormous demands for greater rights. So, and my answer to that is first, they actually both rest on a similar ideological foundation, if you like, a liberal foundation, which is the idea in capitalism that you're as good as you are. Each individual has, and collections of individuals, the right to do their best in the economy. They depend on the rule of law to be safe and to invest and uh, make innovations and start new businesses and all the rest of it, all sort of Adam Smithian, if you like. And in such a society, wealth isn't defined by inheritance. It's defined, it's not by inscribed status, it's defined by what you do yourself. It's profoundly individualistic in this sense. Now, when you've got a society like that, people say, well, if I'm entitled to do this, then I'm entitled to say in politics too, because I'm a valid and valuable human being who's allowed to do what he likes. So the demand for democratic participation grows quite naturally from an ideological point of view. And it did very, very quickly, actually, very clear in England, the first industrial nation already early in the 19th century. But then why did it work? Because the demands could have been resisted forever and some places they were. But the big reason it worked is capitalists need to reach an agreement with these people. So what capitalism did, it generated urbanization, mass industrialization, huge concentrations of workers on whom capitalists depended, who had huge power because they could stop the factories from working in which the capitalists invested. And therefore, relations with these workers became really important for capitalists. They were very vexed, very competing, but they had to accommodate it. And more importantly, still in the late 19th century, capitalists found they needed educated workers. They started supporting the ruling classes more broadly, mass education, if you've got a highly educated or increasingly educated, literate population organized in cities, in industry, accounting for a huge proportion of the population, it's become, you can't treat them like serfs. It's a completely different social relationship. And the demands they're making, essentially, we're equally valid to you. We're all, as it were, equal in some sense. You should give us political rights. Now, that, I think, became completely irresistible. Of course, there were societies that did resist it, but it took an immense amount of pressure and coercion to do so. So I think it's a natural outgrowth. And both 
institutions, capitalism and democracy demands constraining institutions, the rule of law, a limited state. These are things that go together. But it's fragile because, just to summarize it, you are trying to separate power from wealth. And wealth will always try to get back into power. And that's indeed what we've been seeing. And the reaction is, I think, part of the populist upsurge we're seeing. So you make a compelling argument for why we should think of democracy and capitalism needing each other, or at least democracy needing capitalism. It may be that capitalism can survive without democracy. Difficult, I think. That's interesting. Why do you think that's difficult? Well, because I think that if capitalism operates without democracy, it is almost inevitable that it will become a plutocratic or oligarchic form of capitalism. And the natural tendency of an oligarchy controlling the political process is to preserve its own wealth by eroding competition. And we see this all over the world. If you look at autocratic systems, they tend to become crony systems not competitive systems. And on the other hand, if you get tried to have a socialist economy in which the government controls everything, then it's almost impossible to have genuine democratic competition because one party, the party that controls the state, essentially controls all resources and therefore controls everybody, in which case it can't be defeated politically. So I think you need both together and they both need each other for a fully functioning system. And I think we'll see that in China. Indeed, I think we're already seeing it in China. And it's why Taiwan will be richer than mainland China and is. So that suggests that we need these two elements to reinforce each other. But it doesn't mean that once you have them both in place, they will always continue to thrive. So why is it that the presence of the right kind of capitalism was such a boon to democracy in the past, helped to underwrite our democratic institutions and render them surprisingly stable by historical standards. And what is it about those economic background conditions, which has changed in the last few decades or last few years, such that they don't seem to give the same background support to democracy any longer? Well, I hope they will and can, because I think they've had real problems in the past, and the battle for creating democracy was long and hard, and there were terrible crises in the past. The 30s was a much bigger crisis than the present crisis, and it took, I think, quite a bit of luck and a great deal of determination for democracy to survive the interwar period. So I'm not saying it's necessary. It does take leadership. Now, why have we gone through another period of erosion? I think there are, broadly speaking, two things that interact. One, inevitable transformations of our economy, which undermine the relative position of groups in our economy and so society, and political policies which reinforce those changes. The inevitable change, I think it was inevitable, was the decline of the industrial working class, which I think played a very big part in the evolution of modern democracy in, in the most advanced economies. There's something ironic about this, right? Because when you go back to the 19th century or the early 20th century, it seemed as though that, you know, mass scale working class working in shifts was one of the things that would undermine capitalism and perhaps undermine democracy liberal democratic capitalists at the time would have worried about the ways in which the agency of a working class could bring about the overthrow of capitalism and the arrival of communism, as indeed it did some places. So why is it that that industrial working class, which for a long time observers assumed would undermine democracy, in retrospect actually seems to have been one of the factors stabilizing it? Interesting point. My sense of the history, I wouldn't claim gigantic expertise, is actually the industrial working class as a mass force never created a communist revolution. I mean, the communist revolutions all came from almost pre-industrial societies with a very weak industrial working class. Right. That's why China and Russia ended up being communists rather than France, Germany and the United Kingdom. 
Marx's theory that it will be the industrial working class that would generate the end of capitalism turned out to be historically completely false. And I think, in fact, what turned out to be the case, rather, that to the extent that it did go authoritarian, it tended to go support the authoritarianism of the right. You know very well the famous example when the Social Democrats in Germany went with the war aims of the German state in the First World War. You know, the working class supported the war. It went nationalist. And that's always been an important part of this. But I think the basic point is that in sensible societies, the politics of the working class and the economic role of the working class meant that, like it or not, the capitalists had to make a compromise with them. They were too important, too potent in society to be ignored. They couldn't be forever repressed or suppressed. They had to be bought out, as it were. And there were two ways of buying them out, both of which I discovered. One is the creation of the welfare state, famously really started by Bismarck in Germany, and giving them ever-increasing political rights, extending the franchise, allowing them into politics, which is what happened in Britain, for example, in the early 20th century, creating the Labour Party. And the Labour Party very soon, once it had been allowed a share of power, became a stabilizing force in democracy. He didn't want communism. It was consistently anti-communist. The same with the Democrats in America, when the unions became an enormous part of their base support. They wanted stable society. They wanted to get more prosperous. They wanted welfare. There was no question about that was one of their needs. But they didn't want revolution. They were socially and to some extent politically conservative. But of course, they had demands and needs that had to be satisfied. And that created the welfare democracies, if you like, of the mid-20th century. It was a, a solution to the conflicts that Marx had described, but a solution that he didn't envisage. Right. And it turned out very quickly, they didn't agree with the idea that they had nothing to lose but their chains. Indeed, very much so. And they became incredibly prosperous by historical standards. The working classes of the advanced countries achieved a level of prosperity that the serfs and peasants of old could not have even begun to imagine. So it was a pretty good deal. So how is it that technological changes undermine the persistence of that kind of industrial working class. Why is it that that becomes the first problem for the stability of democracy? I think two things happened. First, productivity growth hit manufacturing in a very profound way. We have found of the big sectors of our economy, there are two in which it's easiest to use machinery to replace people. The first and most striking is agriculture which you will remember 200 years ago, about 60 or 70% of the labor force is in agriculture. Now it's less than 1% in our countries. And then manufacturing. We have found over time we can produce more and more with fewer and fewer people in manufacturing. Manufacturing's prices fallen. Its share in GDP and nominal prices is falling all the time. And its share of employment has fallen. So US and UK, manufacturing is about 10% of the labor force now. It used to be 40%. That's a massive decline. Not all of that's happened the last half century. It's older, but it's been going on for a long time and it will continue. So the industrial labor forces of old have just disappeared. Now, part of that is trade, but it's also diminished very rapidly in countries with giant trade surpluses like Germany. Not as low, but the decline is as fast. The second thing that has happened is an immensely powerful skill bias in uh, new employment. So the next stage in our economic revolution, deindustrialization, as I've described, one was growth of new services and new sectors, all sorts of service activities, but above all, everything tech-related, which demand highly skilled people, information workers, if you like, knowledge workers, all of whom went to university. And we created a new, very powerful working class, if you like, of university graduates who had very little sympathy with or engagement with the old working class and who tended to have rather different values. This is a social revolution, which I think, even in my book, I don't think I place full weight on it, but it's an immense thing. And the final thing that happened was a liberalization revolution, of which free trade was a part, but I think the biggest part was 
the release of the financial sector increasingly to dominate the economy, the management of corporations, and the allocation of resources, an enormous expansion in credit and debt. That's a really fundamental revolution. On top of that, the emergence of the new dominant tech sector, and that shifted a lot of income and wealth to the very top of our society, generated vast inequalities in wealth and very significant inequalities of income at the top, essentially the emergence of a new plutocracy. And all this was going along fairly well. People could just about manage the relationship between these things as they were happening slowly under the hood. This was going on until the financial crisis hit, which did stabilize this economically, destroyed, I think, the legitimacy of this new system and created the political upheavals we've seen. And here I've just add one thing. Just look at US at the Republican Party. Why did the old sort of conservatives, the free market, free trade, banking sort of conservatives who we usually associate with the Republican Party get replaced by nationalists, protectionists, would-be autocrats, people with social and cultural authoritarian leanings. That was always there, but they weren't the dominant element in the party. Well, I think the financial crisis played a huge role, the sense of injustice, the sense that the elites had rigged the system against ordinary people, and that's what Donald Trump so brilliantly exploited. So there's a strong strand in the recent political science literature which downplays the economic reasons for the rise of populism. What they might respond to you is, first of all, that when you look at the primaries within the Republican Party, it doesn't turn out to be true that poorer people or people who've had more recent economic downward trends are more likely to vote for Donald Trump than for other Republican candidates. They claim that when you do kind of regressions to explain who voted for Trump, answers to cultural questions, to questions about how you feel about immigrants or how you feel about ethnic minorities, are more likely, are more powerful in explaining the vote for Donald Trump than questions about the economy. What would you respond to that strand of literature? Why do you think that despite what is starting to feel like a little bit of a consensus in parts of political science, and full disclosure, I agree with you in being somewhat skeptical of that consensus, why do you think that nevertheless the economic roots of this crisis really are very important? Well, of course, there's an economics literature which also analyzes the political fallout of events. And there's a great deal of economics literature, some of it, which of course I cite, which shows that economic crises, of which there have also been very many, are usually followed by a political upheaval around the world, that they are trigger events in terms of shifting political opinion, and they are better at helping answer the question which I ask in my book, which is why now? In other words, I have no problem with accepting that the propensity to vote conservative is linked with conservative cultural views. I don't, that's pretty, pretty obvious. It's been obvious since the Southern strategy was launched by Nixon in the turn of the 60s to the 70s, which was clearly an effort to get Southern Democrats to vote Republican. And the appeal was to their values. Of course, it was obviously, including their views on race. So it would be foolish not to claim that wasn't important. But what is striking is if we take the US and UK, which are two very, very important countries that actually in the same year, just a few years after the financial crisis, the Conservative Party, the traditional home of these people, where they voted because they were culturally conservative, shifted its leadership dramatically from establishment views on how society and the economy should be run to uprising views. Now, why did they suddenly shift from Mitt Romney to Trump or from David Cameron to Boris Johnson? Because those old stories, those old lines from these sorts of people, in my view, were no longer acceptable. The conservative voters were still conservative, but they wanted a leader who was far more radical. What radicalized them? What changed? There wasn't a huge cultural shift between 2006 and 2016. There was a huge economic change. Furthermore, we can see this in history. 
well, not allowed ever to refer to it, but one of the most striking examples of this transformation of conservative voting in the direction of a right-wing populist is obviously what happened to Germany in the early 30s. And if you look at the votes, and this was a multi-party system, if you look at the vote for the National Socialists in 1930, it was essentially nothing. And by 1933, they were the largest right-wing party by far. And the Conservatives said, just as the Conservatives have said in Britain and America, I mean, the old Conservatives, the established Conservatives, okay, we can live with this, because actually, at least we're sort of on the same side against the revolutionary socialists, the Marxists, the Bolsheviks. So that was, I think, the trigger event. And the final comment I would make, I think it's absolutely crucial in looking at this, and I don't know how well these studies have done, because I don't claim to be an expert, between the average voter and the marginal voter. The average voter of the conservative parties is unambiguously a conservative. Obviously, they have more conservative attitudes than the average voter of a contemporary centre-left party. The question is what changed and what seems to me so striking about the votes, say, for Trump in the US, in places like Pennsylvania and so forth, and even more striking for me because it's home in Britain, the vote of conservative working-class people in the so-called Red Wall communities, which had always been Labour, but who were clearly het up about immigration more than anything else. That sort of profound cultural thing. They shifted from their traditional support as the trade unions had tended to vote in the part for Democrats. And similarly, these people had always voted for Labour. They said, these people no longer are representing our interests. That's partly cultural because the left of centre parties had been absorbed by this new graduate class. But it's also, I think, because they concluded that these people were part of the same establishment collusive structure that had led to the crisis. They weren't any different. They wanted something different. And the Trumpian-type figure, rather like right-wing populists in the past, was very, very appealing to them. So I would say one should look very carefully. Remember, elections are decided by fine margins. You know, Trump actually lost the popular vote, but he won in crucial states. Boris Johnson vote for the for Brexit won by 3%, 3.4, or whatever it was, percentage points. But the votes at the margin were crucial, and those votes that I've described were crucial. So I think economics cannot be ignored. So one of the striking transformations that you're alluding to is that 30 or 40 years ago, you had a pretty good sense of whom somebody would vote for by asking them a question about economics. And you probably had a pretty good sense of who you were voting for by knowing their social class. And in particular, of course, working class people were vastly more likely to vote for left-wing parties and more affluent people were vastly more likely to vote for conservative or right-wing parties. There's been an interesting shift in this. I think it's a double shift. The first is that actually what's more predictive of who you're voting for is your opinion about a question like immigration or some other cultural question than a question about what tax rate you think is appropriate. And that, to me, I think does put a little bit of pressure on the economic explanation for the rise of populism. But the other related point is that, you know, at this point, uh, many of these traditional working class areas and constituencies in the British case have shifted to the right. And the natural home of left-wing parties like Labour or like the Democratic Party is the sort of upper middle class professional in London and New York and LA and so on. Is this simply a shift in where the fault line between the left and the right lies and it makes as easily for a stable democratic politics once we've gotten used to it and learned how to deal with it as the previous fault lines? Or do you think that there's something fundamentally problematic, fundamentally concerning about the way in which the left has become, in certain ways, the voice of the upper middle class professionals, perhaps leaving the kinds of working class constituency for whom they once spoke to be mobilized and exploited by these populist right wing forces. Obviously, a very important issue that I wouldn't regard myself as in any way a deep expert on this, though it's a development that concerns me. It seems to me that one of the reasons that we are voting less on economic lines is that people concluded, everybody in a way concluded, that it didn't make any difference. That is to say, the economic policy ideology of 
the two main parties in the two-party systems and most parties in multi-party systems were essentially the same. So it didn't make any difference sort of economically. So that made it inevitably less politically salient. Whether that will continue to be the case, I think is a very good question. And it's pretty clear that the Democrats now in under Biden are trying to make it salient again. Whether that will turn out to be right, I don't know. But if there isn't an economic outcome that will make a difference, then there's no reason to vote, particularly on economic lines, because there's not a relevant choice. And that is reinforced by the point you made, which is that of a dominant element in your left party is prosperous progressives in a cultural sense. They're not going to want an economic revolution. They don't want to pay more tax. They're not as wealthy necessarily as the people who dominate the right-wing party with money, but they're prosperous people and they feel that they don't need a huge amount of state assistance. So the Labour Party and Social Democratic parties will also become economically, quote-unquote, conservative because that reflects the interests of these people and that will further confirm necessarily the view of the working class that there's no particular reason for voting for, as it were, Blairite Labour against Cameronian Conservative. Take that example, because essentially they have exactly the same ideology. And by and large, though I don't think it's so true in America, that has been true. So if that's the case, why not go for cultural things? And here, what I, following Piketty, call the Brahmins who rule the left are really unpleasant for many working class non-university graduate people, because they come over as despising their values and their traditions. So if that's the case, and their sense of nationalism and patriotism, if that's the case, well, why not go for the right? Because at least he respects us. Why should I vote for a left-wing party? All of his principal figures, obviously, not only are not interested in doing anything from me, but they also despise me. So I think there is a fairly natural tendency in this situation, if those are the choices you're facing because of who runs the parties now, who are the new powers that be, that you will go for the right-wing populist. And the key thing about the right-wing populist is he can present himself as outside it all. He represents something completely new who understands the urge of people for a restored sense of nationhood, a restored sense of their values socially and culturally, and a sense that they will defend them from all these immigrants who are flooding across the borders. That's not new. The right has been very, very successful, and the new coalitions you describe make it very difficult for the left to respond effectively. Within the economic explanation, it seems to me that there's two subtly different ways of accounting for the roots of populism. One puts its emphasis on a more recent crisis. It is saying that what we're dealing with are still the after effects of a very deep economic crisis that came to a boil in 2008. And there's some good historical evidence for that. We have very good studies in economics showing that actually within the sort of five to 15 years following a big economic crisis, there always is a rise in extremist politics and populist politics, and interestingly, particularly on the right, even though the causes are economic. Then in a different strand of what you've talked about, you're emphasizing these more long-term and structural changes, the decline of the industrial working class and so on. Now, you might think that this issue in two different sets of predictions and perhaps solutions, right? If we think that the problem in the main originates from the recent economic crisis, then perhaps it's the question of waiting it out, somehow getting through it, you know, waiting until the energy around Donald Trump dissipates and he's no longer able to be a political candidate, and then perhaps things will slowly get back to normal. If you think that this is not just dealing with the immediate after effects or relatively long lasting after effects of 2008, it really is that the sort of structure of our economy is no longer conducive in the same way that it once was to stable mass politics that adheres to basic democratic values and norms. Then you might think that we need a much more radical restructuring of the economy to withstand or overcome the crisis of democratic capitalism. So how do you put these two different causes in conversation with each other? What do you think is the right description of what the likely future of a crisis of democratic capitalism is? Well, this is a wonderful question, which I don't address directly in my book, probably should have, but the book is already long enough. My answer for me is I don't know. 
but as is always true about the future, which mostly is surprising, for most people is surprising. I think there is an argument that not only because the financial crisis is fading into the distance, but because the populace in power mostly tended to be very unsuccessful, that people will say, well, we've had enough of all this noise, this disruption, this absurdity. We're going to go back to more sensible middle-of-the-road people. And you could say Biden's election, what happened in the midterms in the US, the overthrow of Johnson and Sunak, the very conservative way the new prime minister of Italy, despite the fact that she's from a fascist party, is actually ruling. All this reinforces the view that actually we're going back to a politics where people want normal, reasonable policy done by normal, reasonable people, and they're going back to, as it were, the establishment with people like Sunak and Biden. I hope this is correct. I think it's perfectly possible that this will be correct. The thing that worries me is that the establishment, that none of us really knows how to generate the rising, widely shared living standards on which the post-war settlement, in my view, fundamentally rested. And our parties do not represent the economic interests of the bottom 50% of our population very well. They represent their cultural and social interests on the right. and the left, they represent a bit their economic interests in a welfare state sort of framework. But they don't really have anything that says, here you are, people without university degrees, you have a bright and blossoming, burgeoning future in our society and our economy as it's developing, because the truth is they don't. I fear there may be a populism cycle. We may move out of populism now. These people will ultimately fail to deliver what people want and hope, and then there will be a return to new populist leaders And our politics will start looking with this huge plutocratic element, a bit like Latin American countries. Is this a crisis of economic knowledge or of political representation? You know, we say you're worried, but we don't know how to bring about a situation which there will be this broadly rising living standards, which help to stabilize democratic capitalism in the past. Is the primary obstacle to us achieving that? But we don't know how to sustain that kind of growth, or perhaps that it's just much harder to sustain that growth once you are a fully developed economy and a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been picked and eaten? Or actually are there policies which, in theory, we could easily implement, but that simply at the moment there isn't the political coalition, the political will to implement? I think this is the point at which people can criticize my book, and I accept it, that I discuss all this in great detail, But I do genuinely think it's very difficult. So the technological and economic forces that created this widely shared prosperity in the economy were, I think, temporary. And if you look at where growth is coming from now and demands are coming from now, most of them are coming from and in sectors which reward the most educated and the most skilled, and generate enormous profits for the benefit of these people. I point out in the book the difference between Apple and General Motors, for example, the two most valuable companies of their age. And in the United States, Apple basically doesn't invest anything in physical terms. It doesn't employ many people. It's a tiny labor force compared to what GM had. And all the people it does employ are very skilled university graduates. It's a completely different sort of business. Finance is the same. You know, finance doesn't need people. It doesn't need clerks anymore. It just needs highly skilled people to manage IT relationships and all the rest of it. So the high-income generating activities, by and large, don't generate the sorts of jobs before. And most of the jobs that are being developed for people are either in sectors like caring, which have no real economic power because they're paid for to a very significant extent by the state. Construction is weak because we 
don't have lots of children to build houses for. We are not building huge amounts of infrastructure because, again, we moved into an economy which doesn't require lots of new infrastructure, except in the energy case, which may be an exception. For all sorts of reasons, it doesn't look as though the economy is going to go back to creating the sorts of structure it used to have. Trade is a bit of a fact here, but it's not the decisive one. It's there, but it's not decisive. So I think there are two ways of thinking about what we should do then. One is to really do our best to generate new growth and in the same time insist that the terms on which people are employed directly and indirectly by the new growth are decent ones. And that will probably mean high minimum wages, lots of labor subsidies, and so forth. But in the limit, I discussed this only passing, if this goes on enough, we may have to start thinking about radical policies on how ownership is shared, how the rental income generated by innovation and so forth is shared within our societies. If we are not to go back, as many fear, to a sort of quasi-feudal structure, if you like, a society in which a small proportion of the people not only own all the means of production, but generate from it such a vast income stream that this is not what we're seeing yet at all, but that they completely dominate society. What we're seeing now is that they, with this new professional middle class, dominate completely the society. But I think we have to say we are agnostic. We don't know. We have to be agnostic on whether the economy is really going to help us. And at the moment, it isn't really doing so. I admire your honesty about the difficulty of knowing exactly what to do. Is there a prescription nevertheless? I mean, for listeners who agree with you about the crisis of democratic capitalism and the way in which the economic dimension is crucial here, the way in which these two different crises reinforce each other. What are the prospects for success and what can all of us do in order to maximize the likelihood that democratic capitalism may survive? Well, I think there are low-hanging fruit here. I suggest that we should try, so far as we can, to have a politics that focuses on broadly shared welfare rather than fundamentally divisive cultural issues. The big problem with cultural issues is they really are zero-sum. They're war to the death, as it were. That's not so true if you focus on giving people opportunities for a better life. If you give, for example, of course, you have to pay more tax, that I accept. But if you give people childcare, if you give people better education, better chances, uh, greater equality of opportunity, better health care in the US, which is crucial, you start attacking some of the new monopolies that we are seeing emerging across a whole slew of sectors where in different ways, the regime allows for essentially monopolization, very big point in health in the US and also in other sectors, the new tech sector, insisting that the tax system is much fairer and is actually implemented. There are all sorts of loopholes that have cultivated this new plutocracy. It is true that the average tax rate of the richest people in the US and in most other countries is less so elsewhere, but in the US is below that of the other groups in society. That seems monstrously unjust. You can reintroduce death duties to prevent the creation of a hereditary plutocracy. You can go back, in other words, to many of the policies that were introduced in the middle of the 20th century and subsequently abandoned. You can change corporate governance. I think there's a strong case for saying there should be greater involvement of workers in corporate governance. The shareholder value maximizing model has not been really as effective as we would hope. So there are lots of things I think you could do to make the system fairer. You can follow the sort of active labor market policies you see in countries in Northern Europe, which have been remarkably successful. If you combine it with training, you can get people whom you wouldn't think could get do completely different jobs actually do learn how to do so. This requires, of course, an active state with some greater level of tax support. And so it is a political revolution. 
But it seems to me those things are feasible and conceivably things that most people will recognize are worth doing if the alternative is a political breakdown. And what I'm arguing is that the alternative might be a political breakdown. I don't say it will be. And what that will look like, we can look around the world, it's going to be really very unpleasant. So that's actually exactly what I was going to ask you as a last question, which is, what would be lost if the crisis of democratic capitalism cannot be turned around, cannot be remedied? What are the stakes here that should motivate us? Well, for me, the stake is that the angry and disaffected of various kinds, cultural, economic, and the interaction between them, will end up installing somebody who subverts the norms and rules of democracy and basically creates what we've now come to call an illiberal democracy, which is somebody else calls a spin dictatorship. Sergei Gurdjieff calls it that. That's sort of more or less the same thing. But essentially, they erode the rule of law. They put their own cronies in the principal positions of power in the legal system, the judiciary, the police forces, the army, and so forth. They effectively ensure that the media are controlled by their friends. They use the legal system and the tax system to persecute their enemies, including many rich people. And they basically create a state which is dominated by them and those whom they choose afterwards. It's a complete subversion of democracy from within. And it's the principal way democracies are disappearing around the world. And in emerging countries, it's happening all the time. We might remember that 23 years ago, when Putin was elected leader, we thought, well, maybe Russia was going to become a democracy. Not exactly what has happened. So I think the danger is that that is what will happen. I think we're seeing it now in places I would never have imagined it would happen. Israel, for example, I've written writing about, we're seeing that some of this. And I think Trump and some of his supporters, some of the people behind him have similar tendencies. Now, what do you lose? Well, what you lose ultimately is your freedom and your security. You may be allowed to be rich, but you live at the whim of the ruler. And, you know, I don't want to go into detail in what's happened to many of these countries, but that's the situation. You are at the whim of the ruler. And the economy will not, I think, work well because the ruler will use his whim to favor those he wants to favor and penalize those who are against him, which is not compatible with a proper market economy, a decent market economy. But it will also have political and social impact. People will stop saying what they think. People will have to be careful about what they say. Now, we're seeing that on the left in one way, and we will be seeing that on the right. And in that sort of society, what I think of as core liberal values, of which democracy is central one, will erode and disappear. Martin Wolf, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.